Hey, howdy, hey there, I haterinos. I don't think I have in infinite jesticles. Finite jest. Hello, finite jests out there. Welcome to the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast, episode number 29, pages 845 to 876. Our guest this week is comedian Max Bruno. Very interesting guy. Another one introduced to me by Katu uh, King from episode three. She's been a regular treasure trove of future guests. I actually first reached out to Max when I first was starting this podcast and uh, just slipped through the cracks, you know, figured out, but figured we have him back here. And yeah, you can find him on social media at Max H. Bruno, all one word, Bruno being B-R-U-N-O. Uh, please go check out his film Smoots, that is S-M-O-O-T-S, on YouTube. You can actually click right down in the description. Go check it out. He feels very strongly about it. Me and Max getting to some neat stuff here. By the way, sorry, guys, that the day uh, the, the day was late. Um, the episode's a day late. I went over my server limits on Libsyn. Those, uh, those two-hour episodes come at a cost. They certainly do. So... Yeah, this one's going to be a bit late. We're wrapping up the podcast this month. Don't worry, it's going to turn into something else. I'm flicking around names. I There's been a name I've been assuming I would use this entire time, but I feel like I could come up with something a little more, you know, something that'll look better on a t-shirt. So we'll see. We'll see if I get to that. But uh, yeah, so very interesting things on this week's episode. We talk, we talk a lot about the concept of uh, the third eye, which seems like it's been hinted at way more than either of us were realizing um yeah max read the book for the first time this year and was a big big fan of it and we get into detail there um yeah fuck it just go listen to it again you can find me as always at jesse dram on reddit on facebook on twitter on instagram on parlor because i am a glutton for punishment i started a parlor just you know fuck with the right wing why not and it took all of a day before somebody had tracked me back to my primary social media and told me my mother sucks dick where everyone could see it. Parlor, where the, the kids who pissed in the sandbox now have a playground of their own. Are they going to call you a cuck? You betcha. That's what we're there for. Um, so, yep, yeah, short intro this week. I got nothing to say. Uh, at Mr. Jessica on YouTube. Send me money at Venmo. I am still unemployed. Yeah, if you're a fan of this and your place is hiring remotely, hit me the fuck up. Yeah, let's be let's be work buddies. Hey, hey, uh, Ashley in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's right. I I I know you. I'm making your name up. But uh, yeah, if your place could use like any social media guy or copywriting, I mean. Why not drop your good friend Jesse a line? I'll I'll give you a I'll give you the ultimate in compliments, the ones that were thirsted after by the kings of old. Like the Roman Caesars knew their immortality meant nothing to hold up to this, and that would be a shout out on a podcast. What? Oh, my cat has entered the room. She's not allowed in this room, but she's in here. I believe she's hunting a fly, though, so I'll allow it. Guys, I'm going to get going. Me and Perry are looking at houses with that podcast money. Just kidding. I'm still unemployed, and I don't charge for this. 
So she and I are going to go check out a houses, and you are going to check out this episode with Max Bruno. Again, Max H. Bruno on social media. Go check out his stand-up clips. Guy's fucking hilarious. I'm sure I'll have him on the podcast again. Check out Smoots. He worked really hard on it. I'm going to go watch it right now. Go watch it with me. Because things are more fun when they're done together. Episode 29, 8.45 to 8.76. Y'all have a nice week. Hope you had a good turkey day. Later. Also, totally random, I found out my last name translates to money in Arabic. Like, I also saw dirham, but I guess dram is like a slang term for that. So, this is Jesse Arabic money, Jesse Patrick Arabic money dram saying, Infinite Jest 29. Bye. Episode 29 of the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast, pages 845 to 876. My guest this week, he is a comedian. His name is Max Bruno. How are you doing, Max? Uh, I'm doing the best I've ever been, man. You know, quarantine, just best mental health I've ever felt, best shape of my life, you know, really crushing it every day, not spiraling uh, alone (laughs) in my apartment at all times. Actually, this is nice. It's nice to talk to somebody and do a podcast. This is cool, man. Yeah, definitely. You know, I actually, I have not been doing all that bad in quarantine. Then again, I had the benefit that like me and my now fiance, but girlfriend, then we moved in with each other for the first time, like literally the week, like that week we both started working from home. And that was when the quarantine started. Same. I never lived with a partner. And now, uh, I mean, she's not my fiance. She's my, uh, you know, girlfriend, we use partner. That's what we do. So well, not, not everybody is as great a match as me and my fiance, but we all try. <laughs> you know? But yeah, where uh, I'd never lived with a partner before. And we just kind of decided to do it for safety at the beginning of lockdown. And it has been going surprisingly well. So I'm glad to hear the uh, same thing's true for you. Nice. But I honestly think, oh, I, I think quarantine has probably destroyed a lot of relationships, but also made a lot of otherwise relationships just like, Particularly, I mean, I know you're in New York. I'm in Philly. Like, just dating in the city overall can be really complicated just because there's so many options. Like, if you if you want to be a lost boy or girl forever, like, you will always have that opportunity as opposed to yeah. if you're living in podunk and like, nah, I think I'm I, I think I think I'm going to play the field of the two divorcees in town here. In <laughs> yeah, well, that's one of the main reasons you leave. Uh, like, I'm from a small town in Ohio. Mm. And, um, you know, if you have a much shallower pool to uh, draw from for both friends and romantic partners, and mm-hmm. if you really want to figure that sort of stuff out and learn yourself, you want to go to a uh, more populous area where you have more options. And that's, that's actually come up this week because uh, I obviously Thanksgiving, I got to go home and visit my family. Uh, we're just in like South Jersey. It's honestly in the Philadelphia area. It's just it's still somehow very podunk, but like <laughs> my, my brothers are both very smart, but they're like blue collar guys. But like the one is like 23. I'm like, dude, if you want to start dating, like you either need to get to the city or like marry a girl now, because pretty soon all the girls in your peer group are going to yeah. be at the least like young mothers. Right. Anyway, anyway, like all the, the good prospects get snatched up real early. You know, because everyone it's like I said, it's that it's it's actually much more sort of doggy dog, I think, in that sort of situation, because, you know, if you're in your small town and there's, you know, four people that you might be actually interested in, I guarantee you there's 20 people that are just as interested in them. And I don't know. Yeah, it creates this weird 
uh, I don't know. I'm glad I got out of it. My, my, I have two younger brothers, uh, one of whom got married at 20. Wow. And uh, he is thankfully uh, now very happily divorced. Okay. But like that's, that's kind of the more standard uh, back where I came from. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's crazy. You hear about that, but like, that is still more the norm. Cause it's like, if you're going to live in a small town, like what the fuck are you going to, I feel like that's actually, you hear like a, a lot more of like, uh, like love rival style violence in the suburbs and in there. Cause oh, like, yeah. like, cause in the city, like somebody steals your girl, unless it's like your best friend. Like, are you really like yeah. most of the times they're like, well, sucks that that happened. Whereas like in the suburbs, like that's my only, that's my only potential mate. Well, I mean, I am, I'm, I'm a collection of memefied, uh, contemptuous, like, traits. I have, like, I'm, I'm polyamorous. I have a man bun. I love infinite jest. Ooh. Like, it's like I was designed by engineers for the internet to hate me. So, like, that's, I needed to move somewhere where, you know, I could exist a little more uh, comfortably. Mm. And, and that's you're, where you're, it is. You're, you're the opposite of a Puritan. You had to run away where you're. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you, you know what? I'll probably have you back on then, because uh, when we're done Infinite Jest, we're going to become more of a general like life criticism podcast. And I do have an episode on uh, that I want to do on polyamory. So great, yeah. Be- well, maybe polyamory. I, I actually prefer non-monogamous because polyamorous kind of implies some some other things, but because uh, you can really define it however you want. This is a conversation for a different time. I'm also very interested right. in the Church of Satan, if you want to talk about that sometime, too. So, you know, Ooh, yeah, let's, okay. let's come on back. <laughs> as, a, yeah, as somebody who definitely dipped into the uh, Levian Satanism thing and also went through an Ayn Rand phase, like, there's a lot to pick apart there. <laughs> Ooh, that Rand phase. I'm glad you made it out of that one. A lot of guys, a lot of guys don't. We lose them. Mm-mm. A lot of people don't. And I'm actually finding online, there's actually a weird, like, Ayn Randy, like, right wing contingent of Infinite Jest fans. Like, they're a weird uh, little pocket. Well, I, could, I mean, you know, the novel is like, I, I, I definitely, uh, I, I love this book. I, uh, I started reading it middle of last year and finished it early this year. And I've even sort of found it hard to read other things now you know like it's i got so like sort of drawn into what it is and and trying to figure that out and like i don't know the i I specifically and this is where i'm probably going to sound like pretentious or whatever but i I this this is the place to do that yeah yeah exactly cool um i do think of myself as like a, a writer i've sort of devoted my whole life to that i you know i wrote a lot when i was very young I went to school for creative writing and like edited the literary magazine there. And then I became a school teacher and I taught writing and now I am a copywriter. And then also that's just my professional life outside of my, you know, I've, I, I write scripts, I write stand up. I write like writing is, is I found one thing I was kind of good at and I have built my entire life playing to that one strength, you know, because I have a lot of, other things that uh, are not strengths. So I was leaning into that. And so reading this just from the quality of like the, the language and the storytelling and the, just the way it goes into your brain Mm. feels different than anything else I've ever read. Like it's, it's such a like arresting experience to read this book Mm -hmm. that, um, 
I mean, I, like I said, I've been thinking about it. It was so cool actually for this podcast to like go and revisit it and feel that again, when I like reread the 30 pages, I just got sucked mm-hmm. right back into it and had that sort of, I don't know, it's kind of ironic because of what the book is about, you know, this like arresting, this grabbing thing that you have to like look at. Mm-hmm. And in some ways the book feels like that to me sometimes. Right. It's, uh, I definitely think we had an interesting little chunk here. Um, one of the issues I've had recently, just because I'm in like the infinite jest groups online and a lot of them just don't fucking like me. They approach me with a, a how dare you to this entire podcast. Yeah, well, the title is going to piss them off from the it's, start. So they have that, that clickbait headline problem where it's like, no, you got to read past the headline. Yeah, exactly. But um, one of the things I keep seeing people put is like they keep saying like, well, it's not a hard book to read. And I think those people are full of shit. It's an incredibly hard book to read. Yeah, but it, yeah. What, what, one of the things I'm realizing now, and I think that's why this podcast has been, it's not only for people who are, I, I found that people who are super fans of this book are still fans of like somebody critiquing it, but at the same like level of minutia as they love it. But on top of that, I do hope that people who have had trouble getting into this book, like will listen to this because at first you're just getting all this shit, all this perspective thrown at you at once. And at first you really you don't have any frame of reference to kind of cobble stuff together but i think that is what allows sections like this where like this is the first time we have a first person perspective from hal and candenza and we're like 800 pages into the book and that's the first time we have this very specific viewpoint so a lot of that early like chaos he's throwing out there allows this kind of like more envelopment like we get way more first person stuff as the book goes along and i think Mm -hmm. that you know, is really interesting. And yeah, one of and the things that's had me come around on the book. There's stuff that happens in the first couple pages of the book that you don't, you're like, what the fuck was that until you're at page like 900, you know, like you don't, mm-hmm. it just comes back. And I don't know, I think uh, something people really react to, like I've heard people say about this book is like, oh, he's just like, you know, throwing his big literary dick on the table and showing everyone what a great writer he is. And I'm like, okay, why is that inherently bad? Like if you're actually, I, I think that's just like a weird ego thing for people where they're like, Ugh, don't make me feel dumb by showing me what a good writer you are. And I'm like, I don't know, man, I, I'm legitimately impressed by like, you know, a, a, the Sistine Chapel version of language. You know, one of my favorite painters is um, uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Ooh, okay, okay. Yeah, you, you, you familiar? I'm well aware of the trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But like, it's it feels very similar to that to me. Where like he would do those huge mosaic insanity paintings mm-hmm. of like heaven or hell or the Garden of Eden, and everywhere you look, there's like that guy's got a bird head. That guy's shitting a pearl. You know, who's what's that coming out of what? That that's like it's like it's like 300 Salvador Dali paintings all like existing together within the like you know christian mythos and Uh it's incredible you know and like that's kind of how this feels too where i'm like oh it's this thing that i can just sort of look at and i i can't fully comprehend it that i don't think you're supposed to i think it is almost like it it is not about resolution in a lot of ways and i don't think it's about something specific either it it kind of it's the closest you know, I know it's like sort of a cop out and it sounds stupid, but it's like the closest I found to a book that like actually is kind of about almost everything. You know, it just kind of like mm-hmm. brings all of this different, like you can think about it in all these different ways and follow all these different paths. 
that go nowhere, but then also weave back in on itself. Mm-hmm. It, it has this very um, uh, like sort of, I don't know if I'm using this right, but I, I think I am uh, like fractal feeling quality to it where it's like, as it zooms in, it's also zooming out. And mm-hmm. as you learn more, you're also getting more confused and like it, it is very contradictory and uh, just like almost like uh, psychedelic in, in certain ways. Like, I'm sorry, I'm obviously I'm gushing. I'm a big fan of the book. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a little. I, I think there's positives and negatives to the approach because at the same time as I appreciate a lot of the small details in there, it is like the culmination and snowballing of that. Like the most frustrating to me about this book, way into it is like eschaton happens uh don gately gets shot and then we proceed to not follow up on those storylines for hundreds hundreds of pages because (laughs) because we need the life story of a janitor we'll never see again you know like i yes (laughs) um but like it's sort of the uh it's like the fox news uh problem where like you watch you know uh cnn and they're like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just introduced new environmental legislation. And then on Fox News, they're like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez just introduced new environmental legislation. It's the same words, but the tone is like, you say that in that way, they're like, that frustrates you and that delights me. Like the, the exact same thing where I'm like, yes, I love that like these side characters and side stories just emerge as these like fully formed like short stories and like narratives that are like often incredibly like poignant and then just go away and you have no idea if they're going to come back because many of them do and many of them don't oh that has been the really frustrating thing writing a summary every week is i have to include every fucking detail because (laughs) i don't know if the color of mario's bolex camera is going (laughs) to like save the save the day on page 900 right yeah yeah that's that would be uh it, it does um, it does defy uh, sort of that kind of analysis, I think, in a very in a, in a kind of fascinating way. Like it's it's hard to like I can't imagine trying to write like a paper about this in college. Like what a nightmare that would be or something, you know, and I like I'm glad I never even tried. I'm glad I just read it as something to enjoy. And maybe that's coloring your experience of it a little, too, because, you know, you've you've undertaken this like this this very uh, like summarizing analytical mm-hmm. way of going about it. And I think that is gonna highlight just how deliberately, aggressively um, uh, inscrutable it fucking is. Cause- Yeah. I mean, it, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, no. Uh, doing it this way has definitely, um, I think it's it's made it infinitely more digestible, like because I can't I'll give you a good example. I uh, concurrently right now I'm reading The Devils of Ladon by uh, Huxley, and I just hit a thing where like there were just two chapters where they broke away from the main narrative to discuss like the norms of the church in the 17th century rural France. And I just skipped the shit just because I don't like, okay, I get, I get what they're going after. I don't, I don't need to know this. I know what they're getting at, but I can't do that in this book because that's the way uh, I, you know, I'm going about it. So it's, uh, it's made me have to force my way through the frustrations. And the fact that I've done it in bite-sized chunks over a period of six months has really made it more digestible. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, you're talking to a guy, I liked Moby Dick, which will mm. um, diverge from the narrative for huge portions just to describe like boating and whaling uh-huh. minutia, you know, and stuff. but something about like those long divergent information dumps are, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I just like, what I like is stuff that is really dense and really like, what, what, what's some other stuff you were into before you came into infinite jest like what led you here what led me here well i mean um le- I, you're legally required to read it once you get my man bun the haircut you know <laughs> you just have to do it like that's uh-huh. i don't know i think uh, honestly what drew me specifically to infinite jest was that like weirdly that memification that the same thing that happened with the man you know like man bun is just a punchline right. like people just say it like we have all just accepted that that it's somehow wrong and not co- even though they're like that's just what i like i just like having long hair and i like then i wear it up mm-hmm. and it's kind of like i think i saw that happening with infinite jest too it was just like here's this novel by uh this uh author who killed himself and um it's supposed to be incredibly long and he obviously put so much of himself into it and why is it just a punchline i wanted to know i was like maybe i i, I went into it not expecting to love or hate it just out of like a weird curiosity of like, Mm. what is this meme that I keep seeing happening? Um, And I also, uh, like I said, I was a teacher and David Foster Wallace, my only uh, other familiarity with him is he gave a commencement speech at a college. um, And I think it's widely sort of titled, this is water because it's like, have you uh, heard that one? Oh yeah, no, we did a we did a side episode on it. And actually I wasn't aware that the initial like story of like the old fish running into the two fish and saying yeah. this as well. Uh I wasn't aware that that actually originated in this book. I did that episode long before it pops up in here. Yeah. And uh, so I had used that um speech in my classes just cuz I find it it's like a great speech to talk about and analyze particularly with like young people cuz it's devoted it's like it's written towards young people and about like providing certain tools for thinking. So like, I was like, Oh, I really like this commencement speech that he gave. And I've spent a lot of time discussing it with students and he apparently, you know, did his magnum opus and then killed himself. You know, maybe I should check it out. And uh, that, that was really what drew me into it. Right. And there's definitely an enticement in like a book because I, I, I feel like when we talk about what the book is about, you can take like, well, it's about tennis and uh, spies, but like depression is always up at the top. So, I mean, you want to read a book about depression by somebody who killed himself. There, there is, there is like, I've ne- like, okay. And again, I'm just sounding like, I, I'm, I'm sounding embarrassing, but this is the place to do it. Like, I don't think I've ever actually been brought to tears reading another book, but I have been brought to tears by this book. Like this like the the way and i think part of it has to do with how zany and goofy and silly it is able to be mm-hmm. and then the whip emotional whiplash distance between how, that and like just how truly dark and like articulate and able and then it comes back to that language like i've never felt depression and, and addiction uh, represented so starkly and truly and powerfully and in mm. juxtaposition with just, you know, the, the silliest shit on earth, you know, like 
so much of the, the like so much of what I felt reading this also was legitimate horror like I got freaked out by um like and I think it comes down to there's even a section in what we read you know where it does that like the the wheelchair assassins are some of the silliest things I've ever said you know it's, yeah. it's like it, it, it they are a joke their entire existence is it's like oh there's the guys in the, and you hear the squeak and then the wheelchair guys are coming to get you and they're always in wacky disguises doing mm. these like harebrained schemes and stuff and then like the way that they like torture and kill people is presented like you know the there was the homeless guy that they like locked up with another guy who was like cutting off his fingers and just shoving them under the door and like uh-huh. for some reason that detail in that context you know like in a Stephen King story you're expecting that you're feeling that but that like the silliness mixed with the horror I think amplifies both in in a way mm-hmm. and so I have like a lot of really heightened feelings when reading this and none of that is more true than in the parts where which I think are the strongest parts which is like the edit house people the addiction mm-hmm. the depression like I, I obviously like I you know I didn't connect as much a lot with the more sort of like grander political stuff going on which seems just really wacky yeah. and like you know not as like and not even really you know like not really not especially prophetic I think some of it is prophetic in that like there is this idea of you know being just like captivated by entertainment and the need the desire to just be entertained and Mm -hmm. um like also even in the very stupid way with the phones where like the video call ones then they like buy all these different masks to wear Mm -hmm. and like alter the and i was like oh it's just filters like he wrote it in the most back ass words stupid way possible but like that's a snapchat filter you know so there Mm -hmm. are like things like that that feel but that stuff isn't as strong as like when we really get to the core of like actual depression and alienation and addiction and some of the stuff we start to see with Hal in this too we're like that's one of the things that scares me so much is Hal thinking he's doing one thing and everyone around him is telling him like why are you laughing and he's like I'm not laughing you know like that like that to me is so unsettling that like feeling of going insane and losing touch with reality I, I I wrote that off very early in the book just because it, it seemed it seemed to me because again at first you have no idea what's ahead in the book but like right away at that knowing the kind of people who love the book it is kind of easy to like roll your eyes and make a jerk off motion like oh he's brilliant on the inside but no one understands him he doesn't fit in but as it comes in like one of my greatest fears in the world is actually very similar to this there's a uh a a disease symptom called locked in syndrome, which is more or less where like your brain is 100% like there and like, not even your, like you just can't communicate at all. Like just total Yes, exactly. And kind of, we're seeing, we're getting little glimpses, you know, we should actually get into the summary itself just because we get into like some of that initial slide in here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I am an undisciplined podcaster and I fucked up. I didn't ask your social media stuff right out the gate. So oh, can we, okay, yeah. where That's can fine. we find you? What are you working on? I am at Max H Bruno on all platforms. Uh, and the only thing that I really want to promote right now, since standup has effectively disappeared, mm-hmm. is I made a short film uh, that is on YouTube. It is called The Smoots, uh, S-M-O-O-T-S. Uh, you search the smoots and if it doesn't come up uh, the smoots max bruno uh it's kind of exploring 
themes of uh, the disorienting unreality of uh, how things can feel and using steadfast denial in the face of that. And uh, there's puppets. So I hope you'll check it out. Hell yeah. Puppets, denial, surrealism, and the, <laughs> uh, the, the downfall of reality. I am all about it. Okay, so let's get into this summary. Uh, at any point, just interrupt me. I, I'm sure you may also have some notes that I completely neglected to put down. Hmm. So, all right, starting with 845, 851, November 19th, uh, year of the pen, adult undergarment. After mm -hmm. failing to find the veiled performer, Marat and Fortier have decided to attempt to acquire the family of the auteur. M. Brulim is now in charge of troubleshooting after one white-wigged volunteer began severing and slipping beneath the door the fingers of a second transvestite volunteer. So, as we know, these are the characters of Randy Lenz and poor Tony, who, yeah. uh, you know, I don't think anybody saw poor Tony having a happy ending, but I didn't quite picture this. And, and like, this is what I'm talking like that. I already called out that detail, and it's like, it's so... Like we spent so much time with Tony and like mm -hmm. he, he had such a horror and like he had such a horrible experience. And I think there's something to be, you know, to criticize uh, Foster Wallace about like, you know, th this is not, um, he's definitely coming from his own perspective. And I don't think there's a lot of like particularly um, uh, charitable views of like anyone gay or trans or anything like that in, mm -hmm. in the book. Uh, and, but at the same time, uh, the reality that, someone with that experience could could suffer this horribly is is very true and i think mm -hmm. is represented I mean, um so it, like it, it, I, I actually felt a lot i felt a lot for tony because he's like the depths of his suffering in this book are so intense i think i remember there's like that point where he's in a bathroom stall uh -huh. right and like that was just holy shit level like uh darkness and to see him just sort of thrown away like this and also but there's, a, there, there, there's also a real sadness in seeing how much they suffered and got clean and made it and yet this is their immediate outcome and it's so horrible like just like imagine having like you're so like you know, he's getting his fingers cut off trapped in a room you know like fuck you know that's that mm. kind of shit that like makes my chest feel cold sometimes with this book mm. <laughs> um Okay, jumping ahead. Uh, Marat has been placed in charge of planning how to kidnap the incandenses. I'm looking forward to this stuff. Like, as soon as Marat showed up at Ennit, I was immediately like, ooh, okay, I, I really want to see where this goes. Um, a little detail we talked before with the ridiculousness of the AFR. Marat knows going to Enfield itself is out of the question. Too many hills. Yeah, there's and then it's, it's that Looney Tunes ass bullshit that comes in right after that other thing, you know, which is so silly, you know, where it's like, yeah, obviously we can't do that. It's uphill. I mean, I, I do think there is something that like uh, does kind of work in horror, especially horror comedy, where you have the idea of like something that is so inept, a predator of like actually getting to you but once it grabs you is the most horrific fate what's it, it's almost yeah. like it's almost like a pitcher plant like it's one of those dumb plants that just hang down or like it follows, like a scrotum right? yes it, it follows. follows that was exactly what i was thinking yeah yeah which also uh, actually that movie kind of fell apart as soon as it got to them it was the th it was the like approaching that was scary that mm -hmm. sort of like it's always coming for you 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that, 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 that goes back to that goes back to like classic zombies because obviously the classical zombie, uh, they're the reanimated dead. They have rigor mortis. They can't move all that fast. I think zombies got ruined when they were like running like fucking jaguars. <laughs> but yeah, they were they were a slow moving horde. But God forbid if they got to you like and assimilated you. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, they plan to wait until a bus with many students leaves and use the old mirror across the highway trick to make them crash, which is just such a fun, dumb, terroristic, like... Again, like these guys, it's funny. It's it's Looney Tunes. Like these yeah, guys it's, are... It's, really- it's, it's, it's cumbersome. It's like, it's, it's, it's right above Wiley e. Coyote painting yes. the tunnel. Yeah, it's literally stupid. And... That is so clearly deliberate because of how it's juxtaposed with like other parts of this book, which are so grounded and so real and so not stupid that it does feel like this kind of, it creates that dissonant feeling that that I love and I find so strange about this book that creates that like whiplash, especially with what comes very shortly after this, like to do this really goofy, silly shit and then go into, well, where we're going, which I should let mm. you get to. I mean, I would almost like to see like that kind of style applied to the old Looney Tunes. Like imagine when the when the coyote finally catches the Roadrunner and impales it with a fucking spike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Gately dreams he's in a southern motel with Joelle. He fantasizes she lifts her veil slightly to lick the sweat off of him. I wonder if that's something Wallace was just into because it comes up a bit like licking sweat. And I know he says that he wore the bandana not to look cool, but because he sweat a lot. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I've been thinking about that too, um, especially with what happens to um, the darkness later in, uh, in our reading, which was also forehead sweat based. And then uh, there's what Lyle does, mm-hmm. which is forehead sweat base and i don't i don't think it's i don't think i wouldn't say it's something he's like in, i don't think it's something he's just into sexually right. but it it's is, just, it, 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 is it is the method he, of his power it is a symbol of something it means something that the forehead and the forehead sweat keeps coming up and then the consumption of that and um i think that is maybe uh, nodding to whatever kind of supernatural element is going on here. You know, there is like this metaphysical stuff going on and Hal kind of talks about it in that scene uh, coming up later uh, where, where he's uh, where it's uh, Stice is uh, frozen to the window, mm. you know, where they're talking about like, what do you think of like, the supernatural, you know, and uh, there is that sort of thing where he's like, I, I don't know, man, you know, there's the, you know, Mario experiences the supernatural and he doesn't lie. And I've seen some fucked up stuff. And I mean, even early in the book, wasn't there stuff about like furniture moving inexplicably around and right. That's, like, been, that, that's been hanging in the background. where just like, sl- they, they've been saying like, just things will turn up places, but it's missing like a prankishness nature. Like, you know, if you walk into a school cafeteria and there's like a chair super glued to the ceiling, it's like, it's like unsettling, like a, yeah. like, a, like a tennis ball shooter in the girl's bathroom. Like it's just, yeah. it doesn't feel right. Yeah. So there is this sort of like unraveling feeling, I think. And mm-hmm. like people's grips on reality and what reality is. It makes me think of like, uh, you know, there's that 
people say like, Ooh, we live in a simulation or whatever. And that's obviously like uh, misinterpreted a lot because it's not like the matrix. It's more like, you know, there is matter and energy and stuff moving around in the universe. And um, we have a brain and senses and concepts and language, uh, which is my primary form. And I think probably David Foster Wallace's too, of like sort of synthesizing a reality, but like, color isn't real you know it's just something our brain creates in response to light it is simulated you know like the you know the our experience so this idea that like this simulation the 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 ability to perceive what it, and then there's stuff we don't see too you know there's like infrared radiation there's all kinds of things that we don't perceive that are you know gravity we can see its effects but we can't see it well, there's you know also the, the whole notion of string theory that like mathematically for our world to like make sense there needs to be like 15 dimensions yet we can only really feel and experience like four but like they yeah. there's no way around it like those other dimensions have to be there in one way or another it's the only it's the only way anything makes sense yeah and uh what is i think hal says something like hadronic particles behave in a ghostly way so there's definitely this sort of like thing where it's it's more of a question mark than a answer but it's like there is this acknowledgement and sort of playing with the idea that um there's there's a lot of stuff going on and that uh a reality is a little bit soft mm -hmm. and um malleable and i think that um I think that the sweat and the foreheads and stuff is just kind of like, this is a thing that is happening and it mm -hmm. means something. It definitely means something. You know, I, I wonder, th 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 this is just a jump. This is just an idea, but like maybe yeah. the idea of the sweat on the forehead, could it maybe translate to something with like the nature of the third eye as we've heard in like uh, a lot of psychedelic stuff? I mean, it's- I think, I, I think there's, a, there's probably something uh, to that. And also just the idea that like, it's, you know, like, whatever your chemical makeup is and that's closest to your brain and you know whatever that is it's sort of like i think it's just like this is a thing that matters but we don't know why it matters but it definitely does and i think it really comes to a head in like what happens to stice you know when he freezes i mean we haven't gotten there yet uh and so maybe we should wait till okay. we get there but okay. uh yeah um, so, uh, back, Joel is fantasizing about Gately. She disrobes before him, revealing a body he's only ever seen with a staple at the navel. I think that's actually a great descriptor. And his own erection rises and obscures her behind it. <laughs> she then climbs atop him and unmasks herself to reveal Winston Churchill's face. No, it's so funny. It's so weird. Yeah, uh, that, that actually got me thinking. I was trying to think if I had any ruined sex dreams like that. And the only yeah. thing I can remember, I remember one of my first sex dreams I ever had as like a 13 year old, which I think may have been with Mila Kunis in my dream. Oh, nice. Excellent was, choice. Yeah, so that, I, I have good sex dream taste. <laughs> uh, uh, and but my uh, my eight year old brother woke me up. So I literally went from like looking into that face. Like my little, Mom <laughs> wants to know if you want waffles. And, uh, and now and I get erections over you've waffles. You've never forgiven him for it, right? What, what was that? And you've never forgiven him for it. No, never. Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Can you think of anything like that? Any, any, any ruined sexual memories uh, or dreams? Uh, I feel like uh, my sex dreams are always ruined, but uh, it's <laughs> like, 
the, the way that my, and this probably speaks to something in my subconscious, I don't, it doesn't turn into Winston Churchill, which I think is very funny, mm. but like, uh, I, it's always like, I'm gonna, like, there's somebody who I'm gonna have sex with, they're into it, I'm into it, and then little inconvenient things keep happening to stop mm. us, and I'm always just like, fuck, all right, I, hold on, I gotta do this. it's like a shitty, like, fucking, uh, uh, like, uh, American Pie movie or something, you know, where I'm like, oh, uh, it's always like I'm about to get it. And then some other thing, I'm like, oh, God damn it, I got to go deal with this. Yeah. Oh, shit, I got to go deal with that. Oh, fuck. And then uh, I just never get to the sex. Not to the mention dream. the true horror is when you realize you're in a dream and then you know, like, oh, no, this isn't going to happen. And then you. This isn't, yeah, I just did all this shit anyway. I just stressed myself out all evening and didn't uh, even allow myself the, the dream sex that I so justly deserve. Our, our subconsciouses are real cock blocks. That's, Sometimes. That's not gonna, uh, Gately slips into another memory. We get a yeah, sad little side story here of a lady who lived next door when he was a child living with the MP, an older woman he was forbidden to fuck with that was thought to be some kind of witch named Mrs. Waite. Gately vaguely befriended her, went over a few times to talk with her. She ended up hanging herself. A few weeks before, Gately had seen her off property. The first time anyone had seen her off her home property, a pitying neighbor had had a party for Gately and some neighborhood boys at their house. And Mrs. Waite had saved up and bought a cake for Gately and brought it over before returning home. The sober mom forbid any of the kids to eat because God knows what the old weirdo put in it. And when no one was looking, dumped it in the trash. Mrs. Waite couldn't have known, couldn't have seen it, yet the timeline seems to suggest she went home from there and hung herself. And Gately was slipping cigarette box, uh, cigarette, fuck, cigarette packs. I haven't smoked in so long. I forgot the term packs. <laughs> was slipping packs of cigarettes into her mailbox after for weeks, you know, thank you, before she was found hung by a meter maid. So that's sad. Yeah, man. I uh, like... I, I remember getting into this section and I was like, oh, it's this part. Like, cause this story actually like wrecked me. And I mm -hmm. think maybe um, it just comes from, you know, uh, I, I think it probably, it, it's just really strongly written and incredibly well done. But I think uh, maybe in my own experience, uh, there was a house on the corner of the block where I grew up in Ohio that we called uh, the jungle house. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it just had like the lawn was way overgrown, like big trees and bushes and stuff did not fit in with any of the rest of the block. And um, I never saw anyone go in or out of it uh, in the fucking 14 years that I lived on that block. And uh, but there were always little dogs barking out at us in the windows and those dogs never came out either. So I think we can imagine, you know, what possibly the inside of that house was mm -hmm. like, and uh, you know, it always just like, it struck me as a kid as said, like in the very much the same way that like the kids in Gately's neighborhood did where they're like, Ooh, what is that? And we have these weird theories and it's so gross and who's in there, you know? Um, but then as you get older, you sort of grasp the reality of how uh, sad and uh, strange that is and how the people inside, what sort of, like utterly trapped in whatever your mind has done to you, like that, mm -hmm. what life that creates for the people in there. And um, the then taking that person uh, as David Foster Wallace does in this part and giving her this like very like pathetic attempt to do something kind Mm -hmm. And in the same way that like the only thing, like this was such a big thing for like 
for her, this person who is completely alone and completely isolated mm-hmm. and just like living this, she's so poor. She gives up the one thing she has mm-hmm. for weeks, which is cigarettes and puts her through all that to make this gesture. She does a bad job. It's gross. Mm-hmm. It looks fucked up and her very best is trash. And then she just hangs herself, you know? And like, that is true though. Like that is a truth. Like there are people all around us all the time whose lives are that brutal and tragic and pointless and end in such isolating suffering like that. And particularly, particularly with a lot of those hoarder people, like it's not unusual. Like you kind of, we have that American notion of like, you know, tough love, you know, buck up bucko, that kind of thing. And then as soon as like, I had a, I had a friend of mine who was a room, a roommate of mine who was like very, very self-isolated. And I started like, you know, come on, buddy. Like, you know, you should lose some weight. Let's get your life together, et cetera. And he ended up losing a lot of weight and he got a lot of stuff, but then like all his mental illness that was forcing him into that basement in the first place, like started fucking devouring him. So like, despite from an outside and from like my personal litmus on what makes life worth living. He was doing much better. Like those, those insecurities were like fiendishly going after him. And, and I mean, you know, David Foster Wallace hung himself, you know, I yeah. mean, like he was a guy who um, really struggled to be alive and to think and to deal with, what it was to live life in this world as himself. He found that to be incredibly painful and alienating in a way that like, I don't know, Mrs. Wave, you know, like David Foster Wallace gave us this fucking lopsided, wacky, multi-candled cake called Infinite Jest. And then a bunch of people threw it in the trash and he hung himself. Like, I don't know, you know, it's like, it's weirdly this, it's this very powerful little moment that I think is so like uh, even, even more arresting in the context of his life and of his death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think oh, well, just one little thing I wanted to put in there just because I thought it was such a good distillation is that I think you really do find out as you get older that like most of the things that are scary as a child are like really fucking sad when you get <laughs> perspective. Like that's just, I, I guess that's just the only emotion you really know as a, if you, if you're a, a yeah. kid with like a not horrible life, if you don't understand something like, ah, that's weird and scary. Yeah. Cause that's just but the I only, the only thing you have to slot it into. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, yeah. I, I like, I think that comes from perspective and mm. um, so much of uh, like sadness I like, I think this book is incredibly sad. Like I said, this is like, I think the only book I've like actually teared up mm-hmm. reading, you know, like actually like actual tears running down my face, reading a book. Um, and I think it comes from uh, just this, this fucking galaxy perspective that David Foster Wallace somehow fucking had. Like, I don't know. I, I can't like the way he uses all the different language, all the different stories, all the different like weird facts and Baxter and like the, the, the space in your brain to do this. I think, um, you know, people talk about how like the more we have that sort of like broadening of perspective. And then the more you learn often the kind of 
more you grasp just how dark and sad, like you said, like the child starts ignorant out of fear. And then that as they grow and learn more, that fear just becomes sadness and depression. And it is so huge in this book, the, mm. the depression it is, it is, it is enormous. And, and to the point where like, it's devastating to read. I mean, you actually just triggered a terrible memory for me. I remember when I was like, <laughs> uh, when I was like eight or nine, there was a kid on my baseball team that like, we found out he had leukemia and like really, really bad. Yeah. And pretty much like a lot of kids were like mean to him just cause like, I, 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 if I were to guess like my parents, they probably had a little like, well, Scotty's not doing good. And he pretty much, my parents warned me like this kid might die. And yeah. I know, and I figured a lot of those kids were just like, this was such a scary concept to them. And particularly when you're little, like it's, it, it, you're, you're, you're a prey animal. Like everything is based on safety. So yeah. if something, even if it's not like, if the represented danger is just the fact that you yourself may die one day, you kind of just want to push it away. Yep. And then that kid did die. And now uh, I, I drive past the park named after him all the time. Yeah. So now that we're nice and sad, let's keep going. <laughs> um, so the entire basis of that story is so that we can now know that Gately's fever dream is taking place in Mrs. Waite's kitchen. Only Mrs. Waite is a nude and deveiled Joel. Uh, it seems pretty clear to me. It feels like this entire scene is being projected onto Gately by the Wraith James Incandenza because it's entirely like what we have been told is the makeup of the Infinite Jest film. Um, yeah, Gately knows that without stating it, Gately knows this creature is death personified. From the description, she's reciting the lines from Infinite Jest. Uh, we all live many lives. Your mother is always the woman who kills you in the previous life, which a lot of feminists do not like about this book. Um, as death explains more, Gate. Oh, exactly what we just said. As death explains more, Gately learns more, but becomes sadder and sadder. The sadder he gets, the more wobbly his vision becomes. And by the end, he's seeing Joel through a light, milky filter. The same wobbly effect an infinite an infant sees its mother from their crib. Gately cries and asks death to set him free and be his mother. Joel only responds, wait. Fuck, man. Like, I, I, when I read that, but like, I remember the first, and then again, like, I, this part, I feel like maybe, um, you know, I, maybe this would happen at any part in the book. You know, I would find, and I, I would remember and be like, oh, shit, this part, not, but like, this part specifically has always stuck with me in such a huge way. So I'm really glad that this is just happens to be the part that we're doing this podcast about. But like back to just the writing too, outside of like the themes in the story that we're talking about. Like I, as a, my writerly nipples got so hard when, <laughs> when like he does that whole incredible story about Mrs. Waite. Mm. And then that's just to set up the room that he's in and that you're in, you're like, fuck, you know, like that was just to create this setting for this other scene like the mm -hmm. whole that whole thing served a really powerful purpose for this other scene and then also the parallel of like mrs wait she says wait and i know that sounds stupid and punchy but it's that thing i again didn't where, even fucking pick that up good all right good pickup yeah, good pickup yeah and, and and then like the way that she's talking about how you know she's like sort of enacting what's in the film infinite jest and like is it like so 
all of these things feel like circles within circles. It's that like fractal thing I'm talking about where it's like, mm. we're getting more, but we're understanding less. And it's like broadening and shrinking at the same time. And like, it seems like it means everything and nothing simultaneously. And I literally can't make sense of it, but it seems perfectly arranged and deliberate and, and mm. mosaic and beautiful. <laughs> like, and like, I, 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 I this section is is what is yeah, yeah obviously it's, it's really good i i find myself responding to a lot of the stuff i can picture clearly mm-hmm. and honestly with the amount of fans of this book it really surprises me there are not more people who are like not making like little fan films trying to capture little scenes like this like i know it's been said that uh, Michael Schur from The Office and Parks and Recreation owns the film rights to Infinite Jest, not because he intends to make it. He just doesn't trust anybody else to make it because he's such a super fan. Yeah. But I almost feel like the only way you could make something like this a film is if you like gave it to five different directors and just told them to like, you make this chunk, you make this chunk, you make this chunk and just have it be this beautiful disjointed mess. But like something like that, I would love to see acted well, I, out on film. It, it is... And like, I mean, I, I love uh, adaptations of books and probably, I'm not sure if it's my favorite film, but it's pretty close is uh, No Country for Old Men, ah, which okay. is an adaptation of a novel. And I think is just incredible, you know, like, so I'm not opposed to that. And I'm saying that uh, because this sounds like a cliche thing that like uh, some jerk off would say, but like, I really don't think you could make a faithful film of this in any in any way i think it's literally oh, yeah. impossible no like, I, 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 th- I think there's different approaches to this like i would i would want to see a film of this with the knowledge that there's no way it could encapsulate yeah, you could it do a tribute to it you could do like exactly. things that are inspired and, and tribute to it and like pull moments from it and if you choose to like yeah i think there could be stuff that is inspired by and sort of or you know, just maybe even just like this moment or something, people could do like, like you said, a fan film or something. Mm-hmm. But the idea of trying to turn this into a movie or a series, I, I think is sort of antithetical to what it is. Right. You know, I mean, like, even like uh, the footnotes and shit, like how do you, what do you do? Like, how do you reproduce right. that? Like there's, there's, there's all of these sort of like feelings in how it is, you know, the switching perspectives, the way that prose is delivered and like these different voices that shift in mm. uh, like scale and in tone, you know, it can go from like the floweriest, most inaccessible language ever to just like lowbrow and like, right. what, like that feeling and that way that it unfolds, I think is like, is, is necessarily uh, one of language and written word, because I think the language, I mean, language is such an important thing that is being explored by this. You know, I think like that's maybe the closest thing to like a core element of this is like what is possible with language? What is language? What do you do with it? Because, you know, like Hal fucking memorized the dictionary and uses all these crazy words and it's all these idioms and like things that are coming up. Um, And I think that is so key to what this is that if you translate it to a visual medium then again, some of the visuals are so incredible in my head. And, and, and that's like, what I, I want to see. Like, I want to see them so bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do get it that like there will be some 
important something lost yeah. in the transition. I want to see the roving radioactive hamsters and the giant headed baby monsters and the yes. the fucking lung over the the ETA and I want to see the wheelchair guys, you know, uh, on the top of a mountain talking to the. I want- Oh yeah, no. I, I want to see that. I want to see the impalement. I want to see the fight scene in the parking lot. That is one of the most cinematic things I've ever fucking read. Is uh, Gately and Lens mm. and the three Canucks in the parking lot. Yeah. Fuck, dude. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Uh, let's keep going here. Five eight five one to eight five four. November twentieth. Ydau. Gaudemus editor, which I looked it up means so. Let us rejoice. This is the first time we are in the first person perspective of Hal. And I'm just going to slam through some of this because I feel like whatever we stop to discuss yeah. will just be yeah. continuing. Yeah. Hal awakes from a nightmare where he's in a zoo. He puts in a plug of Kodiak chewing tobacco and looks at Mario sleeping. He stands on one foot, the injured one, supposedly a great way to deep tissue work out an ankle injury. Finals are three weeks away. The first time in weeks, there will be no AM drills, no classes all weekend either. Hal is woken by a dream of yesterday, too, of Kevin Bain crawling towards him. It is snowing outside. Hal actively hopes the snow leads to a cancellation of something. We find out this is the, uh, they're supposed to have like an exhibition for the fundraisers of the school, the patrons of the school against a team from Quebec. Um, Hal notes that Pemulus has been scarce lately and that the Whataburger invitation is coming up in Tucson, which I think this is the first time we find out that's where the Whataburger is. Um, the, okay, yeah, for these exhibitions, they fly in some not very good international team to show off the Enfield kids against. Hal is hoping the snow will prevent their flight. It's occurred to Hal that without the Bob Hope, he really doesn't look forward to anything in the day. It may have become not just a high point, but the only real meaning of the day, which Hal finds appalling. So that's that little section right there. Um, you know, I only relate to so much of the addiction stuff here. I, I, I have a st- teensy weensy drinking problem so i i get some of this but yeah i i do know that horrible feeling where like you're just having a bad day and you do kind of like well at 10 30 i get to drink so at least there's that and isn't yeah. that a sad fucking feeling yes i look forward to it just as much i think uh yeah i remember um i'm i'm probably what um i a lot of people would call a high functioning alcoholic. I like mm-hmm. to add the high functioning because, you know, I have a job, I have a relationship. I have, uh, I work out most days. I, mm-hmm. I do art and things outside of my regular life. I live a very full life, but mm-hmm. I do drink a lot every single day. Yeah. I, and, I, I, I'm the same way. I always put it like, yeah. no, I drink every day, but the only thing it really costs me is like, I I'm not a violent drunk. As a matter of fact, it's the only right. time I'm anxiety free. Yes. The only thing it costs me is sometimes I have a hangover and I got, I got a little bit of a belly despite. Right. The so, so in this way, I really do uh, empathize with Hal and that, you know, his addiction is just to pot and it doesn't seem to negatively affect, you know, his tennis or, or anything, you know, mm-hmm. but he does need it. You know, he does he like any, when he's without it, I don't know, man. I think also when we're starting to see this, uh, what's going on with Hal here, this is where we finally get like the, the very first scene of the novel, right. Which is the, the like the very first. Uh, page well- I, I think that that's what it's going to lead up to. This is unfortunately the little annoyance here where like we see Hal right here and now we're going to go back to Gately, but then we're going to go right back to Hal, like right where we left him. 
But uh, yeah, this is the first time that we're going to have people where people are like, you know, why are you, dude, why are you laughing? He's like, I'm not, what? Right, but this is the return to, like, actually the book starts with the word, words I am. You know, it starts right. in, in, in ha like Hal's first person in this scene at the beginning that is really confusing and upsetting when you first read because you're like, uh -huh. everyone is just like, he's, it, it, like, I couldn't, you can't make, sense of it and it, it it's a very hard way to start a book because you're like what the fuck is going on and i could see why it's almost like it's probably a lot stopped a lot of people dead right at the beginning because you're like right who is talking what is happening but like that is we we start the book here and then and don't revisit this till now like yeah. uh we start the book in Hal's head as he is like I mean, they said he's like the way they're at, he's making like horrible, like animal sounds and stuff, right? Yeah. He's like, uh, 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 you know, like what, like a real, like full, like psychotic break freak out. But from Hal's perspective, he's speaking very eloquently and doing this thing. And that is such, um, I'd say like my deepest fear probably is losing my mind uh, uh -huh. because you're stuck. You are your mind. So if you lose your mind, right. like you just start. You're losing like, you're, you. Like, like I, I'm a, I like I like to say I, I like I when I was growing up I was religious. My my greatest fear was going to hell, right? But then oh, wait, I, wait, can I can I ask Catholic? Uh, no, no, just uh, no. Stand, like Methodist, you know, like fucking milk toast. Where, 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 where I'm from, Catholic is the standard, so that's yeah. why that's by default. Yeah, 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 but like, so I was so afraid of going to hell, but then you know I like stopped believing any of that, and I don't believe hell is real, so I can't go there, mm -hmm. uh, except. If I go crazy, my brain can make hell real for me and I can go there. Yep. Like that's the like, and like the idea. Everything that, is possible in our imagination. Right. And then Hal has this incredibly powerful brain um, that is unraveling and he can't like communicate anymore. And he doesn't like, it's, it's so, the idea is so scary to me of someone telling me like, you know, um, oh, did you know that you, you know, you always just make this noise or something like that? Like you mm -hmm. just do, and I have no idea. And I'm like, oh fuck, I don't know who I am or what I'm doing is mm -hmm. like so upsetting to me. And like, it's represented so starkly at the beginning of the book, but you don't really know that's what's happening then until like now, you know, mm -hmm. cause that scene was so long ago and like, didn't really make sense, you know, when it was dropped. And mm -hmm. I almost wonder, why he decided to start the book there, or if that was the original beginning. I kind of, I think a lot about like what order he wrote this in and like yeah. did he shuffle it around. Like, I don't know if he wrote it in the, in the uh, structure that it's presented. You know, like he might have just written all this shit. He might have written. He might have written them as individual pieces. Decided what order they were going to be in, and then decide yeah. where to link what where. Right. Uh, but the the starting the book in Hal's first person perspective and not getting back to it until page what eight hundred and fifty one yeah yeah is a is a fucking hell of a whiplash move but it mm -hmm. does feel uh, it's I think that sort of choice um, makes it all the more just like sort of you like it you're like oh fuck you know like when I was I was like oh fuck okay shit. Right. I, I, I'm also realizing that when you read it for the first time, part of you is almost like 
does this person know what is happening to him? Although now with like enough uh, hindsight, it feels to me particularly that like CT is there and it seems like CT is doing all the talking for him, that this is not just a horrible thing that is happening to him, but it feels like something Hal has been living inside of for a little bit now. Yeah. Like he's still struggling with it, but this isn't like, Oh no, what's happening to me? Like he seems to be like, kind of like, Oh, another day in this hell. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So let's jump ahead. 854 to 864. Gately wakes to find the real non-death Joel next to him, though creepily still looking down at him over the bars of his hospital bed as if it were a crib. She's dabbing his sweaty forehead at and lips with a cloth. Joel can tell Don's self-conscious around her. She finds it admirable that she has no idea how heroic and, unro- and romantic he appears to her. Unshaven and intubated, huge and helpless, wounded in service to somebody who did not deserve service. The last and only man Joel let herself admire this way had abandoned her, then lied to himself why he had abandoned her, and concocted a fantasy betrayal between her and his father. Joel is also clueless of the AA trope that newly sober people often find longer-term sober people romantic and heroic. That's a little detail I like here, that even after we've seen Gately do something big and heroic, like, he has been established as the hero of this novel, is that Wallace will not let us look at them heroically because we know Gately was, you know, like, oh, yeah, he he valiantly fought (coughs) these guys off. But at the same time, he fought these guys off who were trying to avenge uh, who were trying to kill a guy who killed their fucking dog. Yeah. And even here, like she's having these emotions for Wallace. I mean, uh, for, for Gately. But at the same time, it's like also she's newly sober. So, I mean, like that would be happening anyway without this huge circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that the, the the 13th stepper thing because uh, I have it's several true. family members who have been through uh, the program, you know, AA, and uh, that's a, I know that's a real thing. And oh, I yeah. love the way that they, uh, that he describes it and kind of dunks on those people there because uh, Foster Wallace was also an AA. So like all mm-hmm. the AA stuff feels, feels great in this. And I mean, it's jumping ahead a little bit, but I do like at the end of the chapter, just because I feel like, so much you hear about the and for those who aren't aware the 13th step in aa is dating somebody who's also in recovery and it's very it's looked down upon but everybody does it to a certain degree but the thing is it's usually said is like ah that 13th step like nobody really cares where in this we actually see gately like feeling ashamed of his feelings for her because he's like i know what this fucking is and it's you know, it's poor Gately. And honestly, it's kind of perfect considering he's in this place where like he's seeing dream Joel and now he's seeing real Joel and he's in and out of consciousness. And even in this moment, he's like in and out of love because like he could possibly be legitimately feeling these feelings. And, you know, as we would typically read in a narrative story, you'd imagine like, yeah, it's the, the, the guy and the girl. And of course they fall in love where he's like at the same time, like I can't trust these fucking feelings because this is also a trope of sobriety and she's yeah. new and if I am taking advantage of her, if I even pursue this with the way things are now. Well, so much of like what AA is and the sort of like, again, back to like horror is kind of the feel and sadness are things that I feel so much in this book. But like, I love that also like AA is in a lot of ways effective and is very explored in this, but like also the way that it just kind of like replaces your it, it, it's kind of back to that power of language thing. They have these like weird, like 
platitude mantras that then just like become real to you and like replace your personality because your brain doesn't work. You're an addict. You're like, you would like, and they like, there is this sort of like hollowing out and like Gately is like, I think he probably really genuinely for good reason, because she's a fascinating, artistic, like attractive, kind person who is, you know, like there's a lot of reasons to be into Joel if you're Gately. You know, I don't think it's like, I don't think he's uh, being a predator in any way by feeling that. Um, but the there's also the AA thing where it's like, I can't, I, I literally can't do that. Like, like right. it's, it's, it is, it is not something somebody with my kind of brain and my kind of situation can do. It's just another thing. And that not, not to mention, Gately, Gately, Gately has found so much through at first being averse to it, but then just shut, Everybody's been telling him, like, shut up and follow the fucking rules. It works. And it has worked for him. So in another way, this is also his first deviation from following the thing that has been working for him. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not deviating. He wants to, but he's not. True. Well, you know, it's a a temptation. Yeah, like, of course, it's it's really sad because it's like, oh, I really. And it seems like they have, you know, she genuinely admires him and there's like real. There's something there, uh, but they, they literally can't. They can't do it because they need these very strict, structured rules to not, you know, just spiral into addiction and death, you know, and mm-hmm. the, uh, it's the only thing keeping them alive for whatever reason they want to be alive. Right. I, I think it's stated somewhere else in the book, but it's like you cannot confront the hole that is inside yourself if you're just stuffing something else in it. Yeah. I think that's in the section exactly on the 13th step thing. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, Joelle starts telling Gately about uh, a recent Kentucky kid she'd seen at the Columb Kills meeting. Uh, Don realizes she's trying to give him a vicarious meeting experience through the story. This Kentucky boy, Wayne, who we'll probably never see again, but we're about to learn all about, uh, (laughs) claimed to have the longest blackout anyone could recall. He had a dent in his forehead from his pa hitting him with an axe when he was nine. One day, his old man started clutching his head and dropped dead. Wayne dragged his dead under the deck of the house and started charging neighborhood boys five books to see a dead body. He took the money to some N-word moonshiners, obviously, um, you know, that's not my choice. N-word moonshiners, where his daddy used to get booze intending to get drunk himself. And then he woke up just recently in Boston in a da- drainage pipe 10 years later, which, uh, yeah, was, it, it, you know, maybe they did good by going with a different script for the hangover. But this one's interesting. Too. <laughs> not I mean, all. It's like, this is so funny mm-hmm. and so upsetting. Like that's that dissonance, that like thing that I think he does so well throughout this book that is so impactful to me is like, it's funny that he blacks out for 10 years. Like there's something just like inherently to me. It's like, yeah, and then he, you know, he blacks out for 10 years, but then the reality of that is so starkly illustrated and, and gross and, mm-hmm. and horrible and grounded in like this, like abuse and, and um, yeah, like that, that it, it creates a double feeling for me that this whole book does where it is like uh, a really sad joke. And I love that. 
So uh, yeah, it, 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 it is an extremely sad joke in a book that is full of them. Um, yeah. Uh, Joel says to Gately that once he, uh, the doctor says once Gately's out of the woods, they can take out the breathing tube and Don can tell her to bring whatever he wants back to the hospital for him. This is actually Don's first realization. He just thought he couldn't talk or was fucked up. He had not realized he actually had a breathing tube in this entire time. Uh, Joel notes she stopped seeing the AA sayings as patronizing cliches. Don notes she's still keeping it all at arm's length by speaking intellectually about it. So we're seeing her go through a lot of the same motions that Don went through. Everybody has a thing about the cliches in AA at some point in this book. Um, we even get into a little bit of the tips that Pat told her not to count the days of sobriety. Just think of them as 24-hour chunks with nothing before or after them. The AA protocol of uh, today. It, I, I, I'm mixing it up in my head. I want to say no day but today, but that's rent which is not <laughs> at all what we're talking about. One day at a time. That's yeah. it. Um, yeah, Joelle realizes this is what kept her freebasing. She'd get frustrated and throw away the pipe and say never again and then count the days. And then each day would get more improbable, like Evil Knievel jumping three buses, four buses, five. And looking at it this way, it's just an impossible length ahead of you that you can never see landing beyond. Uh Gately had the same painful periods of withdrawal where every second was pain and the thought of 60 more of those seconds was torture. He had to handle each and every second individually to get by. And it's noted that though Don is in great physical pain now, it was nothing compared to the physical and psychic pain of withdrawal. But yeah, so Joelle is trying to look at her life now as one forever endless day. And uh, Gately says if he had to live outside this moment and think of all the terrible implications to come the next day and day after, it would drive him mad. The pain, the real pain is trying to live outside of this moment. So. So there's a lot of like interesting, like time stuff going on in this book, you know? Yes. And As a matter of fact, I was really upset, not upset, but like when they were first talking about the like megafauna cycling in the concavity where it's like it goes from extreme toxification to extreme detoxification i was actually hoping we were going to get like some sci-fi like uh like time fluctuations in that area i really thought it was going to go that way and unless he pulls a fast one in the last hundred pages i think i was wrong on that one yeah, but I mean, time is definitely something that's played with. It's told all out of sync, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, and then there's, you know, things like the, what's going on with the Wraith and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think even Lyle maybe has uh, some weird time stuff going on. And well, like, poor, poor Tony, when he's going through withdrawal, that's, as, it, that's entirely explained as existing outside of time in this little like shit and addiction and pain bubble in like that yeah. darkened bathroom stall and so i think time is another thing in this book that is very uh that its plasticity is kind of explored you know and that like um even you know th this passage specifically you know like instead uh you know joelle's talking about living her entire life in the moment of jumping like she's She's not like, I need to do this jump or I ha have done this jump and I have to do it again. She's just hanging in midair on the motorcycle forever. And that's how she experiences time. And then Gately has this thing where like time got so reduced that every second like was like, you know, felt like this other thing. And 
I, I think we can, I think there's something a lot of, we can all empathize with about that where your experience of time doesn't quite feel um, like consistent, uh, at least for me, you know, I, I know like something sometimes time feels longer, sometimes time feels shorter. But not to mention, I, I, I tend to get that when I'm really like sick. It has like that weird, like, everything yeah. like the days go by quicker but the moments go by slower it's th th there's something to be right. said there is a, a weird i wonder if time isn't also the same way of like color where we talk about the problem of other minds where like exactly i cannot red, know exactly. what red looks like to you or blue looks like to you i don't know how you go through time and experience exactly. it yes and and those uh those different experiences of time are in a sense as real as as anything else and that it is all constructed uh by our you know minds in reference to the inscrutable forever that is happening around us you know uh, but like the idea that you know even if someone outside of gately wasn't experiencing time the way he was that time he was experiencing was extremely real and like that i mean that's that that description of it's another one of those things where like it's so good with the I think because I've been, uh, I definitely don't suffer from depression the way that uh, David Foster Wallace does mm. or at the, the level of it, but just, I've never felt something that speaks to suffering the way and in, in some of the ways that this book does, like the way that it describes and makes me feel and understand that specific kind of suffering, mm. uh, even just like, it definitely makes me realize like I was diagnosed with depression as a teenager and I read this book. I'm like, Oh, I never had that depression. I had, like, <laughs> yeah. I had <laughs> like, I had hormonal, nobody will touch my penis sadness. Right. And right. This right, is right. a whole other monster. This is a whole other thing. And, um, I've danced with it a little more maybe than that, you know, like I'm there are mm. parts where I'm like, yeah, okay. And then there are other parts where I'm like, fuck, I got to keep an eye because I never want to get there, you know, like, because right. it can go because it feels like it feels like, oh, it could go there, you know, because I I've seen the hand of that monster, but not its its face yet. And Father David was looking right down its throat, you know, is how it feels. Right. Some people are lucky enough that their demons will only stand a decent length and like wave occasionally. And <laughs> some people it'll just crawl into bed with you, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that's probably why he's dead. Yeah, poor guy. I, I'm actually his. I went into this a little like blase, and I'm. I'll even say a little cruel, just because when you don't know sure. anything about somebody like that's, and particularly you know what I knew about the book. Because my whole thing was I read like 400 pages 10 years ago, and yeah. I was at the point like I don't like any of this. Why the fuck am I doing this? <laughs> So there was a little like, you know, eh, the world doesn't understand him. and blah, blah, blah. But then when you yeah. actually read the details where like he'd been on medication for years and then he went off it because it was like it wasn't it was like giving him big stomach problems and then nothing else was working. And then he went back on that medication and it didn't work anymore. Yeah. So like there was a, a big like ascending staircase of like desperation that eventually he just dropped off the end and edge it's of so, and that's so, so fucking sad it's so frustrating to me that whole thing where like you know you just did the yeah and i know you like you were talking referencing a previous thing but like people do that like voices like oh you know i am a genius and the world doesn't understand me and it's like well yeah but i think what you're reacting to 
are a bunch of fucking losers who think that that's cool and adopt that as their personality mm-hmm. without ever doing anything. But and I mean, j- just I mean, being David just being the age we are, uh, I know David a lot of people is a is a genius that was not understood. You know, like like he, I think it is it is literally like I don't know, man. As 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 provable as it could be to me, uh, that guy is a genius. You know, like he was right. an incredible mind. He used language and storytelling in ways that I think um, have never been replicated, you know, truly. And uh, like affected me and made me, he made me literally cry and laugh out loud and the same thing, you know, like that. And like, so, uh, I mean, yeah, it's like, what is wrong with saying I'm a genius and uh, I feel alienated from everything. Like, I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. think he's even saying I'm a genius. I don't think he is. Like, that's another thing that I don't think he's like saying. I think he's saying, I have a brain that does this uh, and works this way and feels this way. And a lot of, and you know, like, I think it's genius. I really do. And I think mm-hmm. he knows that he is talented and intelligent and perceptive. But I think also a lot of the wackiness, a lot of the silliness that comes in is maybe going like, hey, also, you know, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, the, I'm being silly. Like, I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm sitting here going like I'm king shit of brain town, right. <laughs> you know, like right, I think right, right. It, it, it is that thing where he's going like, okay, but also, you know, like, yeah, 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 silly shit because, because what the fuck am I doing? Uh, I'm sitting here writing this like mm. convoluted fucking brick of a book and um, I'm just working it out myself. Here's a joke. Isn't that mm. funny? You know, like See, I, don't know. I, I, I think some of the pushback he gets is uh, particularly. Uh, may I ask how old are you? I'm thirty. Okay, so I'm thirty-four. You and I are right around the same age thing. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of a pushback of, uh, I, I at least I feel it of like suicidal ideation in pop culture because like the exact age I'm at, obviously we all uh, experience the emo thing to a certain, the cut my wrist yeah. and black my oh, yeah. shit. Hot topic years. Exactly. But also in childhood, I still have the very blatant memory of Kurt Cobain killing himself. And uh-huh. it does feel like you do want to push back a little bit at like that doomed genius. The world just couldn't take him. And there is just a little bit of an instinct. Like, Kurt Cobain was a fucking junkie who could barely play a guitar and he he took it too far like I don't like it's sad it happened there I don't know it's you kind of want to pull somebody down just a little bit just to make that death seem so much less noble I guess um yeah I guess I I've come from a more sympathetic perspective you know because I don't think um I don't know how many people are actually killing themselves to seem cool. You know, like, I don't think that that like actually, I think there may be people who like well, talk about it and make it their fucking brand. And they're like, you know, mm-hmm. I just want to die, <laughs> you know, like sweeps bangs out of face or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that person doesn't do it. The person yeah. who does it um, is, you know, really, in actual pain that is um that i'm not going to say i can't imagine because Mm -hmm. like i can imagine i can imagine vividly and and do vividly imagine um circumstances in which i would want to kill myself and i actively Mm -hmm. um try to avoid those circumstances uh as 
whenever possible, you know, like it's like, I I think I'm spending my, I'm living my life deliberately trying to uh, not kill myself. You know, I'm going, okay, so what's the, I think that's actually, you know, that's, uh, it's an, it's even a thing I've talked to my partner and other people about, or it's like, why do I, why did I, you know, like, quit a teaching job and move to New York and live in a place with uh, five roommates and no windows for years working a shitty retail job, you know, in the darkest place. It was to pursue something like, because if I, I knew if I didn't try to do this and I got to a point in my life where I knew I had just not done what I actually wanted to do and it was too late, I would kill myself. I like that feeling would be like, so it's like trying to figure out what triggers those things and what makes you feel that way and what brings about um that those are those are very different pains trying and failing is a very different pain than never having the courage to try exactly yeah and like so but and that's just me that's my thing Mm -hmm. but i think uh when it comes to you know uh i certainly don't think uh david foster wallace or uh kurt cobain for that matter um, killed themselves as part of some like well, no no re- 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 real quick, quick. I, 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 I want to make it clear I, like I wasn't move. it wasn't like a branding move you know no, no. Was, I, I, was, I I wasn't it, putting that on them specifically I was putting that on the deification of suicide by their fan base then I don't I at no point did I think David Foster Wallace was tying that noose going I'm gonna get such a great write up in the New York Times yeah <laughs> yeah my book sales are gonna go through the roof yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's go through a little more here. Joelle shows Don a photo album from home of her personal daddy and random farm animals, all of whom have a story, like Infinite Jest. Uh, Gately well, finally gets an idea. This. My personal daddy. Yeah. It's so <laughs> such a weird way to say that. It is. Uh, Gately finally gets an idea. He grabs Joelle's wrist and mimes to her to get something to write with. Gately randomly pictures Joel and he happily married with Gately holding a veiled child on his knee, which is adorable. Hmm. Um, also fantasizes removing her veil and finding an eye in the center of her forehead. Oh, okay. Maybe I wasn't far off with that. Yeah, I, I know you mentioned that earlier. I think there's, I think you're onto something. Okay. Uh, or Winston Churchill for that matter. Hmm. Um, you know what? We can actually skip all that stuff about the 13th step. Cause I think we addressed it pretty well. Yeah. So back inside the skull of Hal in Candenza, and this will wrap up our episode. Um, Hal looks outside at the building snow. He pictures CT awake and pacing at the headmaster's house, building himself into a state of total worry at the exhibition tomorrow. He turns a corner and finds orthostice with his forehead against the window, his breath fogging and ex- obscuring any view to the outside. Notes that ortho has a crew cut, which isn't important. It was just not how I pictured ortho at all. Yeah. Um, they talk for a moment. Ortho notes that Hal sounds like he's been crying, which Hal didn't notice at all. They discuss the opposing team from Quebec getting stuck in the snow and probably having to move venues to accommodate the snow tomorrow. There are sounds of at least two boys weeping down the hall. Um, Stice tells a joke about a statistician duck hunter. Um, yeah, now that we're this far into the book, I can say one complaint I've never lost about this book is how vaguely unrealistic all these teenagers are which i know is explained they're like elite athletes but like there's none of the hormone there's none of the hormones there's like these uh, all these kids feel like these kids talk to each other as if they are like grad school dropouts deeply in debt and i I don't i don't know it's something that's always rubbed me 
a the, little bit the wrong way. The, yeah, it's it's definitely weird um, the way specifically that the ETA. But like the thing, the thing to me about that is um, people outside of ETA commute don't have that. Like if like you know you read like a Stephen King book and you're like, why do these people talk this way? No one talks this way. Everyone's talking weird. But it's uh-huh. everyone. Like in this book, it's specifically the boys at ETA where there seems to be a very elite, like weird fixation on like being, you know, like being the smartest, you know, and I, and like the most athletic, the most elite. So it kind of, I think is to me that I think the charitable um, interpretation of that, which, you know, and I think, I think you'd make a fair point because like they are super fucking weird is um, that this environment sort of cultivated by the Incandenza family, which is the most extreme version of this, you know, but it's built, you know, the the Incandenza family, like Hal is more like this than any of the other people, Mm -hmm. but he's obviously sort of revered. And then it's made by, you know, Avril and and her late husband and like, you know, I- I, I, this environment around their weird like family way of communicating and mm. weird obsession with like this sort of posturing that is like bled into the culture of ETA. So I think there there's some justification for it there, but yeah, when they're like, it, it doesn't feel like these, I've never met anyone who mm. acts or talks like this. You know? I, I actually think you may have just like very satisfactorily recontextualized this for me that I'm okay with it. Because if you look at this as like the extended parenting of Avril and James, I guess yes. it does kind of, stand a reason that they would all end up like well i mean and even 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 in the way that like the school is described in certain parts because there's the lungs and then there's like the cap like the tunnels and like the nerve center and stuff it is described Mm. like this one sort of like being that is all sort of an extension of this family you know and i think there's something there where it is kind of this this weird organism uh made up of all these people that do kind of get this this hive mindy kind of thing like because like eschaton is so insane but like they're and so uh unnecessarily convoluted but that's like sort of fetishized and enjoyed and like that's what we do at eta man this is how we play games we do it in this fucked up like super like like this is how we do it and it is like a growth out of you know this family that has and it is pointed out early on that like they're pretty unique amongst literally all the athletic academies and that they have a really rigorous academic uh, yeah. basis. So I guess they are, yeah, I guess they are kind of portrayed as the outliers from the very beginning. Yeah. It doesn't make it any, like it is a little weird when you're in it, but I do think there is, I'm not going to say that like uh, I, it didn't, once I kind of like was thought was thinking, I was like, no, I think it, it, it at least makes sense as much as anything else makes sense in this, you know, like, right. they, you know, there is a sort of heightened silly version of reality going on throughout the, you know, we've got, like I said, roving radioactive hamster brigades and stuff, you know, like shit's, shit's weird. And uh, within the weirdness of this world, uh, it, it bothered me less and less as I went along too. Cause I think early on, I'm like, what the fuck? And then I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I kind of see what's mm-hmm. going on here. 
Um, so Hal asks Ortho why he's standing with his forehead against the window. This is where we find out that he was looking out the window, breathing onto the window, and that condensation froze his forehead to the window. Hal tells Ortho he's going to help pull him off. Uh, Ortho asks Hal if he believes in the paranormal, that he saw and heard someone walk behind him while frozen to the window and slowly walk away. Hal says he used to believe in vampires and himself used to say he'd see his father's ghost wandering around from time to time. Mario has seen paranormal figures as well. Stice says he has a paranormal secret to tell Hal, just as Hal yanks Stice's head back, which only stresses out Stice's forehead as he screams, put it back, put it back, which Hal does. Uh, Trosh wakes up. And I, I am loving the imagery of Trolsch always. I just pictured him like mean Gene Okerman, Okerland, always yeah. wandering up like, and I see we have a problem here. Mr. Stice, can we get a word in? <laughs> he's such a dick. For He's just doing it like, it's so annoying. Mm. Um, <clears throat> Hal tells him to get something warm. Trolsch was mysteriously sleeping in Axford's room. Again, I don't know if that's ever played out, but there it is. Uh, we meet two janitors, Kenkel and Brent, and because it's Infinite Jest, we're going to get their entire life story. <laughs> um, Hal tells the janitors they need to get something warm to get Stice unstuck. The janitors note that Hal is telling them this like he's about to burst into laughter, which Hal does not realize. So, yeah, we're get so now we, we're getting a second. Whatever's happening to Hal is happening very quick. And I'm realizing this is also... It's uh, I it, when I first w was leading up to this, I immediately thought like, OK, Pemulus is going to give the DMZ to Hal at some point, And that's what's going to lead to this downfall, whereas it actually seems a little bit more like Pemulus was right that like the marijuana was like keeping was like the duct tape barely keeping him together. And what if he falls apart without it? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what else to make of that. Um. Those janitors are so gross. <laughs> like, I hated that. The, the phlegm, the, where he spits jets of phlegm, where, and then his fucking simple-minded crony, like, goes over and wipes it up while he just monologues at him. Uh -huh. Like, that was, uh, yeah, that was gross. And uh, I, I love that it, it's sort of, like, thrown away, but to me, implied that the uh, Brant, the sort of the guy with the, he's got the weird scars on either side of his head and is described as like moronic or submoronic. Uh -huh. um, they're like, yeah, and uh, they both live in this apartment that overlooks a parking lot where a bunch of unexplained ritual mutilations recently took place. And I'm like, oh, that was totally that guy. Like, I don't know. I just, I drew that <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh yeah, they just overlooked the thing. Like, yeah, a bunch of that. You know, he's got these weird unexplained scars on the side of his head and he's kind of a creepy submoronic guy. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, that's for sure him. Like, I, I mean, that, that is kind of a fun David Lynchian kind of look at the suburbs. Like, oh yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's a janitor. He's a decent guy. I mean, he does some ritual scarification shit, but you know, <laughs> everybody's got their thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, I think, I mean, I really want to, I think we should really, I don't know. I, because I, I, I don't know. But there's, we touched on it before, the third eye, the sweat, the forehead, and uh, then, you know, with Stice, his forehead is what is fused to this window. And, 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 and what was he attempting to do? He was attempting to see, and he, got, he fucked up his third eye over it. Right. And, and he even said, like, they even say that this, this thing happening is itself supernatural because glass doesn't conduct heat like metal. You can't, yeah. he shouldn't be stuck like he is, but he is. So, like... Something supernatural 
happened. He was looking like he woke up, he was looking out the window and he got like fused to it. And there was this visitor that came through. Like, it is this kind of, again, that like, there's this lurking unreality. There is this unraveling thing that is, that is happening in the background. And I just feel like, I don't know if this just like, like nods to it and points to it. But again, I don't fucking know. Like what, mm. what does this mean is, uh, is something that I still, I don't know. Like he's, he, what he's, he was woken up by what? His, his roommate shitting the bed, right? Uh, I think he said his roommate snoring, but it's possible I might've No, there's that something either. about he, his, his, uh, expl- and then he has to put like the sheets ripening under the bed. He just gets new sheets and goes back to bed. And then, uh. he, you know, but so he's woken up by his roommate. I think it's not really clear. It's either like, I think he's shitting the bed. He could be having nocturnal emissions though, based on how it's anyway, he's ruining his sheets over there. Right. And uh, in a way that wakes up Stice. And then he goes immediately back to bed and starts snoring and Stice can't get back to sleep. So he decides to look out the window and then he just sort of blanks out, right? Like something happens. I, yeah, I, I think he did just blank out for a little bit. And when he came to, he'd been there long enough that he had conducted himself there. Yeah. And, and then there's, he, he, he's the one who brings up, like, do you believe in the paranormal or but whatever? If I, if I remember correctly, I think Stice might also be the guy where, like, it seems like the object impermanence stuff moving around the academy has happened to a few people. But, like, it, 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 Stice has been the one communicating a lot of that to us, I think. Like maybe I know there was around him in sort of a way. I, I well, know there did. was there was one scene in the cafeteria where like they're doing the incandenza thing. Okay, again, this is applying to me more and more because they're doing the incandenza thing where they're all having different conversations. Yeah, and I think Stice is the one that keeps talking about like, yeah, there's a thing hanging on the wall. I have no idea how it got there. Has this been happening to anybody else? And I think he might be the first. He might be the first one showing actual concern about it amongst the kids. Yeah. Well, and like he says, so like he says that. He, uh, you know, he brings up the supernatural. He asks Hal about it. And then he's like, I could tell you, he's like, I could tell you some stuff that would shake your fucking tree, man, or something like that. Yeah, that's right. He says he has a secret to tell him. And then I think we don't actually. And then they just breeze past it. So I think whatever happened to him, he's not telling us the whole story is why I think, you know, like he's saying, you know, I got up, I was looking out the window. Next thing I know, I'm frozen to it. Something happened that he's not ready to talk about. Right. You know, in that is my, is what I think. And, and that he got fused to this thing. Now, what it means that like, he has this like whole casual conversation with Hal before he even tells him what the predicament is. And that like, he sat there with it, like against the window, um, like until he couldn't feel it. You know, he's like, oh, I was like starting to worry, but then I just stopped feeling it it i wonder if it is like kind of a metaphor for something and that like you know like lyle licks the sweat off the forehead like that's how he like learns about the people the third eye or something and then just maybe this attempt to just like he saw something that like i need to stop i need to not have a third i need to just be two eyes you know like let's just Mm. Burn Ooh, off. Yeah, yeah. To to look at that as maybe or kill or block or or saw something. Maybe it wasn't even a conscious choice. Like he just was privy to something so whatever that that part of him is now annihilated. You know, and, and I'm mm. that's that's my 
best interpretation, you know, right now, but, um, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people with different theories, but that's kind of like the feeling I get from it. Um, just pulling all these different threads together and trying to make them make sense. Yeah. Like I said, I more so than even finishing the book itself. Like I'm just ready to be done with the book at this point, but, uh, I am looking forward to diving into the analyses. Cause I'm somebody who does that on their own. Like, you know, I watched that four hour video that claimed to explain everything about twin peaks which <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm i'm look i'm looking forward to dive into it maybe maybe people will hate me a little bit less when i come ask them the, these questions well i mean i just met you and i don't hate you at all you seem like a great guy well, there you go well you know what that is the end of the episode so maybe let's not push my luck any further um <laughs> yeah thank you very much dude um yeah once uh once COVID's done, I'm going to be trying to come up to New York and do comedy more. So maybe, maybe I'll run yeah, into you somewhere. I'd love to see it. Can I, can I, can I plug my thing one more time? That, that was my next question, sir. As you oh, were. Fuck yeah. Right, right. Guys, please watch the smoots. It took me a really long time to make, and it only takes you 13 minutes to watch. And I promise it will not be so entertaining that it kills you. I mean, you could have just lied and said it will be entertaining enough to kill them. I think that would be a little bit, but yeah, I'll put that, I'll put that link in the description. I'm going to go check it out myself. Awesome, um, man. All right, Max Bruno. And uh, I'll end like I end every episode. I will stop recording now, but you and I keep talking. See you guys. Right. Sorry. This was a day late. I have to tell them now it's a day late. Cause I went over my data on Libsyn. So I'm sure they'll already know by the time I get to this, I should stop recording.